pray with me again, please? Father, I beg of your mercy to be poured out here this morning that we may see, we may feel, we may love your glory being the purpose for all things through mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, Amen. This is the final week in this series of a journey through biblical history. And what I'm going to attempt to do is to take the last 30 weeks and just throw it all into this one sermon. Say, this is where we've been. This is how it all fits together here in a nutshell this morning. We began by opening up the Bible to the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that caused us to stop. Because there's a big assumption there. And that's the big word, God. Okay, God created. Why? In other words, we looked and we saw, and you see throughout Scripture, man who's created in my image for my glory, said all over the Bible. So we concluded that the reason God created, went outward, the infinite, eternal One, brought into existence that which did not exist, and at the pinnacle of that existence, humanity, was for the purpose to spread His internal glory outward. To spread the essence of His beauty and goodness and joy and happiness outward. And that caused us to ask big questions. What does that mean? Who is God? And what is His glory? And how do the answers to those two questions necessitate that God not remain a happy trinity in the sense of without going outward in creation? What is it about the answer to those two questions that God would thus have to create everything that is not God? And so in looking at the answer to the questions, who is He and what is His glory, it brought us to the consideration of who's God? Meaning, not in relation to creation. He didn't become God when He created. Who is He before creation in His essence that would move Him to create? And we can go to the Bible and just look at verses that talk about the blessed and happy God, the eternal joy that Jesus prayed, the joy I had with you before the world was. We can go that route. But the route that has so helped me from Jonathan Edwards, his treatise on the Trinity, written over 300 years ago, is this contemplation. Okay. Logically, that makes sense. If there is a God, one who has never come into being, has eternally existed, and He is thus omnipotent, all-powerful, He is omniscient, all-knowing, therefore, He must, by definition, as an axiom, a self-evident truth, 
be the happiest of all possible beings. Why? Because to contemplate that the Eternal One who has omniscience, all knowledge, knows everything that is to be known absolutely, comprehensively, and fully, and has all ability, power, authority to do with that knowledge, to be in whatever way He would so choose to be. Therefore, to think that He is less than infinitely and eternally happy is an absurd thought. It must be. Then we ask the question, what must be true about this being? for Him to be as infinitely and as fully happy as possible. I submit, Edward submits, He must take delight, joy, in whatever is most delightful, and joyful, beautiful. Because... If there is that which is of supreme beauty and glory and goodness and greatness and joy-filling, but God refused to take all His energy to delight in that object which is infinitely beautiful, glorious, and good, then He could not be as happy as He could possibly be. And therefore, we have seen, as the Bible says, unfolds this and it comes out with terms. This is a way of understanding it that has been so helpful to my Christian life. That God has been eternally with all of His power and energy and knowledge been loving, delighting in that which is most beautiful. Which happens to be Himself. He has been delighting in His eternal perfections and goodness which is Himself in the reflection as a subject would stand back with His knowledge. We can't contemplate this because we're finite beings. But the contemplation of His very essence and beauty has stood forth from and to all eternity in the second person of the Trinity, His Son the exact representation and duplication of His very nature that the Father has been loving the image of Himself for all eternity in the person of the Son who has stood forth as the Father's object. And the Son has been finding His delight and fulfillment and joy in the reflection in the Father's face. That's the definition of God. Not quite. And that very community of love in the sense of, now I'm happy. This is unbelievably good. What? Me and my son. And the son, your joy, your goodness is so infinitely, unboundedly keeping me utterly content. That energy, that dynamic of community and spirit is omnipotent, is absolutely perfect. That therefore it has, by definition, that 
spirit of the community of love and joy between the Father and the Son stood forth, personified as a third person of the Trinity. It's where we went. And that's huge when you open up the first verse of the Bible because that would mean this, therefore. When God says, let there be light, He creates. It means you cannot understand that in the sense of the car driving down the road and has a bumper sticker and says, I owe, I owe. So, off to work I go. Because what does that mean? We know what it means. It means I am going to work. I am choosing to work. God did choose to create. I am choosing to work, but because I have to pay my bills. In other words, I'm not working for the sheer joy of going to the job and doing the work. I'm working as a means to another end. And if God ever created as a means to another end that He did not have, it would be horrendous news for us creatures. His bumper sticker rather reads, I'd rather be golfing, fishing, whatever. In other words, if everything else is taken care of and I can move and act from the desire to do that which is an end in itself, that's what I would be doing. In other words, so we made this statement in this series. It means that God did not create in order to get something that He did not already have. He is absolutely contented in the Holy Trinity. Absolutely needless. He did not create, therefore, in order to, now I created, now I feel that little vacuum of my life, now I'm a little bit more happy, like you operate, we all operate as creatures. He did not create to get something that He didn't have previously. He created in in order to overflow with that which He already had Himself. His glory. His essence. And so we opened up the first chapter of the Bible, and we have seen that this God, by the agency of His eternal Son, by the Word of His power, created out of nothing everything that is not God. And that He holds in existence, moment by moment, every one of you and everything that exists. And by virtue of His being the Creator and His providence, He owns everything that is and has the right to do with everything and everyone who is His creature. He could do with them as He pleases. We saw there is no higher court of appeal for us to go to. He is the infinite one. His law, His word, is final. He is simply absolute. Without beginning, without ending, and without developing, becoming, 
something later that he wasn't previously. And every human being without exception will have to reckon with him sooner or later. And there are only two possibilities we have seen in this series. Rebellion against him, his word, his ways, or becoming like a little child and dependent upon him as a father. And so we saw right after creation in the garden then the next thing we saw was the fall of man. Our first human parents fell into the deception that was offered them and chose to rebel against this God. The deception they fell into was, remember God said, I'm here. I walk with you. You have me, creature, to enjoy me, creator. And every other created thing I made for you, you can delight in me in and through it. Eat of any tree of the garden that you want. Freely! Except one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the core of the rebellion and the sin was independence, spurning the idea of being like a child to God and trusting His Word that He is the only source of true happiness. It was spurned from the desire to be, as you see in Genesis, like God. Independent. Self-reliant. The deception and the temptation that Satan brought concerning the tree would, is basically something like this. <laughs> Don't really listen to the Creator. He doesn't really have your eternal joy and happiness at heart in His commandments to you. Go ahead, turn away from trusting in Him telling you what is good or evil, right or wrong. And rather, start making those decisions about right and wrong and good and evil for yourself. Because if you do that, you will be like Him and thus you will really be happy. That's the sin that they gave in to. And thus at the core of sin, it always, at its first and foremost, before it is a harm to another person, has to do with each one of you individuals with your Creator. At heart, it is the desire and the action that flows from it to be independent and self-determining and self-reliant. And as a result, of the fall in the garden of our first parents, God removed His sanctifying Spirit from them. They, Adam and Eve, were the representative of every human being who would come forth from them subsequently. Their fall was our fall. In them, we have all 
sinned. And that is why you know something was wrong with you from your first consciousness. It's called sin nature. That's why my wife and I know our little one-year-old girl is radically sinful and selfish and self-reliant. At least she wants to think she is. We are sinners. Not because we sin. Oh, I've sinned, therefore I'm a sinner. No. We sin. We rebel against God because we are sinners. We're born into it. And the essence of our sin nature is the intense distaste of submitting to the Creator. It is this intense distaste of the idea that His Word is absolute law. His Word means you must come like a child and be dependent. Our sinful nature and state hates that reality. And so, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, sums it all up for us as we have seen. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But this has been a series on redemptive history. Wonderful word now. Because that means God had always purposed a history where He would be redeeming, buying back, undoing or reverting back to even a better place than the fall of man. Sin. The underlying theme that we have seen in the last 30 weeks in this book of redemptive history was that God, who had created for His glory, had never gotten off the track of it. He was going to glorify His name in the obedience and the joy of a people. He purposed it from eternity past and He had always stayed right on track. And so we saw, one day He chose one man named Abraham and He made him this promise. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God's goal in reclaiming by mercy these fallen, judgment-bound, condemned race, He was going to reclaim them. He was going to redeem them. And He began it by choosing one obscure pagan man who had a wife who was barren. And from him, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, he would produce a people called Israel. Abraham and Sarah had a child named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen one, not Ishmael. Isaac and Rebekah had two children in Rebekah's womb at once, and God chose Jacob. 
and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so Israel, Jacob had twelve sons, and those twelve sons became the heads of twelve family tree kind of things called the twelve tribes of Jacob. The twelve tribes of Israel. Of Israel. And after centuries of being enslaved in Egypt, those twelve tribes called Israel, God again moved in order to glorify His name by delivering them out of Egypt's hand and Pharaoh's hand. Saying this through Moses at the Red Sea, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh, that is, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent and watch Him do it. And so, when God through Moses led the people then to Mount Sinai in the wilderness to give them the law, the basic reason was to show them what it looks like to trust in the God of the Exodus. The law was an unfolding of what obedience from a heart of faith looks like. The law was never meant to be, never intended to say, do this and by it you will be saved from your sins. The law was never, or it never assumed perfect obedience. It was based on the assumption of sinfulness. That's why it was based on God's mercy. I am the God merciful to unteen generations to those who love Me and trust Me. It demanded of the people of Israel to bank their hearts on God's mercy for them. The law of God was a law of faith calling for obedience of faith. And along with that law in the first five books of the Bible, we get the ceremonial differing ways that Israel, the Jewish people, were to live and to be and to make them distinct from others. Their dietary laws, the circumcision of their male children, and the sacrificial system of offering animals for the covering of sin. And all of this, God's calling to faith and the sacrificial substitutionary system with the tabernacle and the priesthood were all there pointing to a coming Redeemer by whose death God would put away sin on behalf of those whom He's saving forever. Then we saw in the wilderness, remember, most of the book of Exodus, and then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy cover a period of 40 years. 
40 years from being delivered from Egypt and now in the wilderness. And in the wilderness wanderings, we saw God's message to Israel that even though you're here and there's no food and no water, I will and He did take care of them. Therefore, message again, trust Me. Just flip forward quickly. You go to the New Testament. Jesus stands by the Sea of Galilee one day and He refers back to God sustaining them by miraculously feeding them from the heavens with manna. And He says, you've heard of that bread before you stands now the bread of life who has come down from heaven. Everything was pointing to one person in the history of humanity. In the wilderness, Moses was told, hold that serpent-like figure up on the staff because people were dying of the plague and tell them, look at it. And if you look at it, you'll be well and healed. And Jesus said, I'm that one to look at. I will be put up above all on a cross. And that cross will be the salvation of those who look at it. For 40 years, Israel was tested in the wilderness. And then Jesus comes on the scene and the Holy Spirit of God led Him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And He came out victorious, sinless, Then God brings the children of Israel after 40 years over the Jordan River into the promised land. They conquer it. They dwell there and they find their rest. Not really. Partially, they find rest. It was an imperfect rest. It was another picture, parable, type, of something that was to come later. And so that's why the New Testament book of Hebrews makes it clear that for us, back then 2,000 years, which is 1,000 years after Joshua, or 1,200 years after Joshua brought them into the land, or even now, there still remains a promised land in our future. As it says, we're looking for, quote, a better country. A city which is to come, which is not made with human hands. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, the writer says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So after then, 200 years of being ruled over by judges that God would raise up, God finally gave them a monarchy. It was birthed from the human side out of a sinful desire. We want a king! They meant it for evil. And God gave them a king. And He turned it for good. Because through one of these lines of the king, King David, in his line, God promised to bring a greater king, the son of David, a Messiah, a Savior, towards whom everything had been pointing. The history of Israel, as we have seen, is a great lesson book written down, not just for the Jews, but for every people's group.
when that Savior would come. It is a lesson book for the nations. And that lesson book, as we have seen these last 30 weeks, teaches that God is the Creator and the Sovereign, and He rules the world. His goal is to subdue the rebellion and make for Himself a people who would be obedient and joy-filled by forsaking self-reliance and turning, called repentance, and trusting in Him again through faith and hope. And the lesson book teaches these people cannot do this by works of the law, but only through trusting in His provision. So the prophets throughout the Hebrew text, throughout the lesson book, foretold over and over again that God Himself will send one. Your response could only be one thing. Not how good you could be. Not your works. But entirely banking your hope on the mercy of God who will raise up for Himself a greater Son from the root of David. And His name, as we saw in the book of Jeremiah, will be the Lord, our righteousness. And the Old Testament prophets foretold of this future event over and over. And then the next thing we saw in redemptive history for God to bring to a climax His redeeming purposes took almost everybody off guard. Because He split the coming of this figure, the Messiah, the Son of David. He split His coming, we're looking for this coming, into two comings, which are separated by at least 2,000 years. And we saw this was utterly unexpected by the first century Jews. But even the Old Testament prophets did not see what I just said clearly at all. God would give them portions and pieces. One prophet would prophesy about this glorious coming from the heavens, the King, the Messiah. And then, once in a while, someone like Isaiah would prophesy Isaiah 53 a suffering servant who would be butchered on behalf of many. Listen to how the Apostle Peter put this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-11. to Concerning this salvation in Christ, the prophets themselves, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and Habakkuk, and the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He, the prophet, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, they foresaw a Messiah in little places like Isaiah 53. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. But then they saw He's a glorious King who's going to come and reign and destroy His enemies. But how those two fit together, they didn't see. God didn't let them see how it was all coming together. How is a suffering 
butchered Messiah figure going to fit together with a glorious king of Daniel, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. They didn't know. And so what we saw that happened though in the coming of Christ, there were two comings. The first time was to come and to suffer and to die and to pay the ransom. And then, and we still await it, will be His second coming where He will gather His people to Himself and bring judgment on unbelievers. See, the prophets and even the first century Jews they were looking forward to one coming. One great day of the Lord which would bring an end to this present evil age and bring a beginning to the age to come. The king prophesied about would come and he would sanctify his people. He would establish his kingdom and his throne and he would rule in peace and righteousness forever. The coming of the king for them meant the end of the present age and the beginning of the age to come. It meant the establishment of the eternal kingdom on earth. Is it any wonder that his disciples were just baffled and stunned after, okay, Peter, you're, you're, you represent us, we get it, Jesus. We confess You. We got it. You are the Christ. You're the One. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of David. Got it. And then Jesus says to them, quote, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, Jewish elders, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. We would be baffled. How in the world are you going to defeat your enemies? Establish your kingdom and fulfill the promises if you're going to be rejected by Israel and slaughtered and executed like a common criminal. It took three years of them listening to Jesus' teaching. It took a number of resurrection appearances and it took finally the outpouring and the anointing of the Holy Spirit for His apostles to finally get it. That it was precisely through His incarnation taking upon us a full humanity and His living, and His suffering, and His death, that this King would defeat His enemies, inaugurate the kingdom, and fulfill the promises. And when the apostles finally got it, now they were ready to interpret for us the meaning of His first coming. For example, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, every human being has sinned and falls short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Big words, I know. He's saying, this is what God did in His first coming. God had His eternal Son slaughtered on a cross so that God's judgment upon all who would be saved and who deserved eternal wrath would be put on Him. The substitute called propitiation. Meaning, thus God's wrath would be satisfied and appeased. And He says, because of this, these, are you one? Sinners would be justified. That's a verb. That means that's an action word. It means it's an action God does through Christ who was the propitiation. He says, Paul says, here's the interpretation of what was going on in his death. God had a people whom He will justify. He will take them and wipe all of their actual and real sins and sin nature finally away. And not only that, He will justify them, that is, count them as perfectly righteous before Himself forever. As we see Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, he's talking to Christians here, for our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. He had no sin, so that in Him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This great double imputation. The cross first before it has something to do in us, which He is doing in every Christian called sanctification, outpouring of His Spirit, working on us. Something was done between Jesus the Son and God the Father on the cross. He was putting away the sin and thus the wrath that the sin deserved upon many people who would show themselves by coming to faith in Christ one day. And He was living the absolutely perfect life that Adam failed. If you don't like the idea that Adam was your representative, how could you possibly have a clue what the cross was about? Through one man, we all died. And through the one righteous man, Jesus Christ, all who are in Him are made perfectly righteous because He did what you could not do. He lived sinlessly. And it is that sinless life that Paul says, so that we become the righteousness of God. You're thinking, I'm a dirty sinner. You got it. That's the miracle of the cross. God imputes Christ's perfect life 
His perfect humanity to your account as He imputed your sin which deserved wrath to Christ on the cross. The great switch. That's how they interpret it. Not only that though, as you go on to read the New Testament, what also comes through with the apostles? We have been in this series of redemptive history. It's linear. It has a beginning. It has an end. One thing does come after another. That's the way God set it up. There is this age and there is the age to come. But now as we open up the apostles in the New Testament, they still speak of we are now in the last days. We are in the end of the age. One important reason why I think they do that so that it never gets lost, especially in a series like this. Thirty long weeks we've seen What God's doing is it unfolds from creation to the fall, to Noah, to Babel, to Abraham, to the kings, to the New Testament. And that is this, the incarnation of Christ. That is Him, by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, being enfleshed in humanity in the person of Mary. His coming and His suffering and death is not just one other bend in the road of redemptive history. It is the end, the goal, the purpose for which everything is been culminating to come to its fruition, peak, and climax. And that's what they see in the New Testament. We're in the last days. This is it. It's the end of the age. God sent forth His Son. For instance, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.11, Listen to the words He chooses. Concerning all the Old Testament events, thousands of years of history, He says, those Old Testament events happened to them as an example. But they were written down in the Bible for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's how they speak. The Christ has come. The peak, the goal of all existence has happened. These are the last days. Peter says in chapter 1, verse 20 of 1 Peter, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, came into human history in the last days for your sake. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up trying to explain what was happening to thousands of people looking on. Peter gets up. This is what's going on here. Quote, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh. Paul calls it the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26-28, to the writer says it this way, listen again for both comings, the first coming and the second coming, but since the first coming, it is the last of the age, the end of the age. Quote, Christ appeared once 
for all at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So, the end of the ages has come. And ever since the end of the ages has been inaugurated 2,000 years ago, the Gospel of the Kingdom is being preached to everyone. The Gospel of the Kingdom is being preached to everyone. And then, the second coming of Christ will take place. What we have seen in these 30 weeks, in other words, what redemptive history means is that the eternally sufficient, absolutely needless infinitely and gloriously happy God created man kind in His own image in order to overflow and spread His glory far and wide through them. Thus we, humans, were made for God's glory. As the answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism written 400 years ago is, why do I exist? To glorify God. And to enjoy Him forever. And God desired, got it, this is, got to get it, He desired for that joy to be experienced in mercy. And to have those whom would be caught up into His being as creatures forever to enjoy Him in mercy, there had to be wrath. And for there to be wrath, there had to be a world in which sin existed. None of this was plan B. He doesn't have plan B's. He's sovereign. So that, here's the glory of it all. Part of redemptive history is the fall. It is judgment that is deserved. It is wrath. And so that all of human history would point to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, forever. And that Lamb, that Savior, says to you, if you're one of His sheep, if you're a part of the flock, He said, Fear not, little flock.
because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Gary Mizugami, since the time I met him when I was 20 years old, 26 years ago, was a man who didn't live for money. He didn't live for things. He was a person who was faithful because he had a joy and he knew the truth of Jesus, the pinnacle of human history, who said, Fear not. It's my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Therefore, nothing else matters. And Tuesday, unexpectedly, he met Jesus in a way He never met Him before. And He is thrilled that the mercy of God guided Him to obey this text. So as we're closing these 31 weeks, hear Jesus again. Hear this. Fear not, little flock, because it is My Father's Good pleasure. Don't miss it. He is happy, thrilled, unaboundedly to give you the kingdom. God has unabounded, infinite joy and pleasure to give you the kingdom. To give to Gary Mizukami this last Tuesday an inheritance that he waited many years for which was but a breath. Get this. Jesus doesn't promise you health right now. He doesn't promise you wealth. He doesn't promise you fame nor popularity. He promises you the kingdom. He promises you the rule in the reign of a happy God over you forever. In the kingdom of God, I mean this in the second sense, we have discussed this. In the future consummated kingdom of God, the Bible's clear, if you're His flock, you will inherit the earth. You will judge angels. You will reign with Him forever. You will eat of the tree of life. The wolf will lie down with the lamb in peace. Nation will not rise up against nation. War will be learned no more. Our physical bodies will be made brand new and incorruptible. And death shall be no more. But all of those things are secondary. They're not it. 
the main reward of the kingdom of God, of God's rule over you is God Himself. It is to enjoy and to behold the glory of God Himself forever. How? With the very pleasure, the very joy that God by definition, by His internal essence, has always been enjoying Himself. That's the gift of God. That's the gift of the kingdom. It is the very spirit of eternal joy that He has in loving and delighting in the fullness of His presence forever that He has redeemed you to. And one of the great frustrations that every true Christian knows down here in this life right now is the frustration of how weak and feeble our desire factory called our heart is. Our capacity for joy is so minute that we are supposed to feel the frustrating gap between the reality of God's glory, what He is, and our heart's capacity to feel it and to enjoy it. But, that's now. At the consummation of the kingdom, God will remove every sinful restraint from us so that we will have the ability to savor and enjoy and feel with the heart as we can that infinite satisfaction. Not the partial taste here and there delights that we ought to be experiencing now. This is the highest of all possible joys. And this is what Jesus, the King, prayed would finally happen to every true sheep. Quote, John 17. Just listen to your Savior's prayer. Father, I desire that they also, that is, the ones whom You have given to Me, may be with Me where I am in order to see My glory that You have given Me. Because you loved me, the reflection of your image, before the foundation of the world, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the goal of all history. 
It's the goal of redemptive history. Jesus asks the Father that we might see His glory. How? Quote it again. So that, put your name in here if you know Christ, so that He, she, so that the love with which you have loved Me from all eternity may be in them and I in them. The eternally glorious, happy God's very joy that He has in Himself. That is, the Father's joy in the Son, the perfect reflection of His beauty in nature, in the Son's joy in the Father. Personified in the very Spirit of that community, the Holy Spirit is the goal of redemptive history. That He may be in you to make you happy through and in the context of mercy forever. Father, may You open our eyes even more. May You cause the frustration of the weak feebleness of our hearts to be expanded more on this side of death, on this side of being absent from the body but present with You unhindered, on this side of the resurrection of our bodies. Oh, Father, may You cause our desire factory for Christ to grow so that in comparison our desire factory for sin in the world may shrink to the glory of Your great, precious Son, I pray.